Welcome to The Word at First Prez. As we begin the new year, we're doing a sermon series called Top 5. The question this series is designed to answer is, what are the top five things every Christian should know about God? Each week, we will look at a different aspect of who God is and how oftentimes it controverts our traditional understanding of how we think about God. I hope you enjoy. Let us continue our worship with our second scripture reading coming from 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, there is a blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he had put the Gibbonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had tried to wipe them out in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make expansion that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. And the Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put anyone to death in Israel. He said, What do you say that I should do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be handed over to us, and we will impale them before the Lord at Gibeon on the mountain of the Lord. The king said, I will hand them over. They buried the bones of Saul and his son, Jonathan, in the land of Benjamin and Zela, in the tomb of his father, Kish. They did all the king commanded after that, God heeded supplications for the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, This is the second reading that we're going to do. This is from Matthew 19, verses 16 to 30. This is the story that you all are very familiar with. This is the story of the rich man approaching Jesus and asking him how he would inherit eternal life. Then someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must... I do to have eternal life. And he said to him, what do you ask me? Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, then who can be saved? But Jesus, 
looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, Look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, we doubled our congregation from last week, so we're really improving. If we keep on this trajectory, things are going to be great before long. Thank you for being here. Uh, I hope everybody's doing okay. I know that COVID is expanding exponentially, but um, I hope that you all are doing well, and I hope your families are okay as well. For January, we're doing a sermon series called Top Five, and this is a series we will come back to again and again, probably over time, where we're going to talk about the top five things you should know about some topic in the Christian faith. For this first iteration, we're going to be talking about the top five things that every Christian should know about God. Top five things every Christian should know about God. And last week, we began this series with the concept that God is love. If you weren't here or you didn't watch that, this sermon is a building sermon series, like the way this series works. And so each sermon will build on top of the next. So if you didn't see that or you don't know what that is, I would go back and watch that because actually everything that we talk about from each one is going to play a role. So we talked about how God is love, how that is critical to our understanding of the Christian faith. Today, we are going to talk about the relationship between God and suffering. And the reason why we are jumping to suffering, why that's the next topic in this series, is because if you subscribe to the idea that our God is a God of unconditional love, then you very quickly run into a problem. And that problem is that if God is loving, as Christians claim, then why is there so much suffering in the world? This is an issue. This is a problem that you run into immediately as soon as you make that claim. And so I want to talk about this because I find that a lot of Christians don't know how to answer this question. They don't know how to deal with it. And I want to talk us through it today. You with me? All right. I'm going to need you guys, just so you know, I'm going to need you to really be here because I need some energy back. Okay? All right. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Okay. So we started off with 2 Samuel. And the reason why we started there is because one of the big problems that you find in the Bible when you're talking about suffering, is that the Bible very much associates suffering with God. God is the cause. You can see that in what TC read from 2 Samuel. What's the story? Basic premise. There's been a famine for three years in the land. And that famine is caused by God. Now, I think it's really important that we understand that when we're talking about a famine, because we don't ever experience food shortages in this country, that When there was a famine, people starved to death. I mean, that's just what happened. It's kind of like what's happening right now over in the Middle East. I don't know if you know in Iraq, that is, they're going through a really bad famine right now. Afghanistan, many of you are probably aware, that's a horrible famine. And a lot of that has to do with shifting weather. That the fact is, is that they're not getting enough rain to be able to grow their crops. Same thing's happening down in certain countries in Africa. 
that in Sudan, for instance, they're having the opposite problem. They're getting torrential downpours of rain, which are wiping away all their seeds, which they can't grow. Now, the reason why we don't have those problems is because A, we import a lot of our food, so we get it from other parts of the world, and then B, the other way we deal with it is we have technologies, right? We have irrigation, modern irrigation techniques, we have pesticides, not great for you, but it does keep away the bugs, and we have lots of fertilizer to help them grow. In the ancient world, right, they did not have access to that kind of science. They didn't work, so if, you didn't, if it didn't rain, plants didn't grow. If you grew the plants and insects came, likely they were gonna eat them all. You had to worry about fungus and mold and all these things. And when that happened, you found yourself in a very precarious position. And because they didn't have a scientific understanding of the world, they felt like everything was really out of their control. And when you have a famine year after year after year, the only way they can explain that is that God is angry at us. God is the one causing this. So we get into the story, and what T.C. read to us is that there's been this famine, and David goes to God and is like, God, why is this happening? And God says to David, well, here's the situation. Your predecessor, Saul, who is now dead, by the way, he tried to exterminate the Gibeonites, and that's why I've been a little bit upset at you guys. So David, he goes to the Gibeonites, and he's like, hey, guys, I know we have beef with each other. Is there a way that we can kind of, you know, resolve this situation? And the Gibeonites are like, yeah, no, we can resolve it. Why don't you just send us seven of Saul's sons? And then, well, that, we'll call it even. How's that sound? David's like, sounds good to me. So he goes back home. He grabs seven of Saul's sons, sends them on over. And what do they do? They execute those guys because the father is dead. And then what happens? God lifts the famine. They can all eat again. All right, let's just redo this story. Make sure we're all on the same page here, right? So because of one man, because of Saul... God is going to bring a famine on the land and hurt everyone in the population because of that. And then the way that it goes away is that God says, hey, go send those seven guys over, or basically you sacrifice those seven guys, and it's all going to be fine, and God lifts it. We're on the same page with this? All right, now if you're a modern person reading this, I think you can come away from this story with only one of two conclusions about it. The first conclusion is if you read it at face value, right? Face value is God is kind of mean, vicious, and frankly, a bit unfair, if we're going to be honest, right? Because basically God is willing to hurt an entire population of people, to cause people to starve to death because of the choices of a single person, which they had no control over, by the way. So God is willing to get back at everyone for one person. The other way that you can read this is that this is a group of people who are writing this who are trying to comprehend a world they didn't fully understand. So why do famines occur? We don't know why they occur, but we believe that God controls everything that happens in our lives and therefore God must be angry at us for what we've done wrong and therefore we have to get back in God's good graces. Now if I sat here and I said to you, Killing seven people will make it rain. What would you say to me? You would say, you're crazy, right? But back then, that correlation made sense to them because life was out of their control. You with me on this? All right, so this brings up a bigger question, though. The question, and this is really the question that we're going to be looking at in this sermon, which is, 
How much does God control your life? This is a big question, because if you're going to deal with the problem of suffering, then you first have to make a determination to what degree, to what extent, does God exert control over my life? Now, for the people in the Old Testament, clearly they believe God controlled a lot of what happened to them, right? Does that same thread continue through the New Testament? And that's why we're reading today from the story of Jesus and the rich man. Great story, one of my favorites in the Gospels for sure. So, this rich man, he comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus... He comes back at this guy, and he basically draws from the commandments. So the commandments, the Ten Commandments, you know they're broken into two sections, right? First four, deal with who? Deals with God, right? Like, I am the Lord your God, observe the Sabbath, so on and so forth. The last six have to do with how we interact with society. And so he starts quoting those things, right? What does he say? He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother. And he throws in, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. But basically, it's those five, right? And so the guy hears that, and he's like, oh, well, I've done all those since my youth. But Jesus isn't going to let him off the hook that easy, right? Because what Jesus is going to do is he throws in. He left out one of those six. And the last one he leaves out is the commandment not to covet. Now, what does it mean to covet? Covet means I see what you have, and I want it for myself. So he tells this rich man, he says, well, look, all you have to do then, if you want to be perfect, just go sell everything you own, give the money to the poor, and follow me. And so what happens? The rich man, he walks away very sad and dejected because clearly he had a lot of possessions and he was unwilling to part with them. And this is where Jesus delivers probably one of the most damaging statements in the entire Bible. He says how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you think that's a hard statement for the people sitting in this room, given just how many people in here and online, how much wealth we represent by ourselves, it was actually harder for the disciples at that time to hear what he was trying to say. And I want to explain that to you. Because it's clear if you read it, they don't really get what he's saying. So he's like, okay, I'll throw you an analogy. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is what? Basically impossible, right? Than it is for somebody who has riches to enter the kingdom of God. And when they hear this, that's when they get it. And they're like, well, who then can be saved? Now, I don't know about you, but every time I came to this, from the time I started reading it when I was younger, I've always found that to be a very strange reply. Who then can be saved? It's almost as if they're saying to themselves, well, if the wealthy can't be saved, then who can? Now, to understand why they're saying this, you have to understand the connection between God and wealth, okay, in the ancient world, particularly among first century Jews. So this is really, really important. For the first century Jews and other cultures, but Jewish people in particular, your life circumstances were a reflection of how much God loved or hated you. So let's say, for example, you're having a child, and your child is born with some type of intellectual or physical disability. That was thought to be a judgment by God for something your family had done. 
if you're living in poverty, financial circumstances, and you can't afford to like, feed your family, that is thought to be a judgment from God against your family because of some sin, your parents, your grandparents, maybe it goes further back than that, that they committed. The idea was you were judged in real time, not afterlife, this life. So vice versa, if you were good, you were rewarded in real time. So if you are wealthy, the reason why you're wealthy is because God loves you. And it's because you have clearly, your family has done good throughout the generations. And that is why God is rewarding you and God favors you in real time. You with me on that? That's important. Okay, so now you have that background. What happens? You have this wealthy man. He comes up and he sees Jesus. So he walks up, he speaks to Jesus. Now, the disciples, how are they thinking about this wealthy man? Initially, they are looking at him and they're thinking to themselves, well, this guy's favored by God, isn't he? I mean, the reason why he's rich is because his family has done good all along. That's what they're thinking, right? And so... When he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's thinking, already this rich man is like, I have a leg up on everybody else because I am wealthy. And then Jesus throws in the commandments and he's like, I've done all those things, right? Now, from the perspective of the disciples, this guy is essentially perfect. Like there's nothing wrong with this guy, right? He's got the money, so you know that he's doing really, really well. And then on top of that, after the money, the guy is also following all of the commandments. So he's essentially perfect in every way. This guy is gonna be at the front of the line. If anybody's gonna do it, it's gonna be at the front of the line. And then Jesus steps in all of a sudden and he shatters their entire understanding of the world. Not just the rich man's, but the disciples as well. Because when he says, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You can see it in their response. They're like, well, if this guy can't be saved, and he's essentially perfect, then what chance do we have? We're just a bunch of poor fishermen. Peter even gets up and he's like, dude, I left everything to follow you. And now you're telling me that I'm not going to be able to enter into God's kingdom? And Jesus you know, he wants to dissuade them from this because why are they thinking this way? Like, why do they think this way? They think this way because they believe that God controls their lives. They believe, and you can see this in their answer, again, if you are wealthy and you are in good health, God is rewarding you, yes? If you are poor and in bad health, God is punishing you in real time. God does not just determine your lot in life. God determines your level of suffering. And Jesus, he wants to dissuade them of this. He's like, guys, you don't get this. You don't understand. This guy isn't perfect. No, yes, he's wealthy, but that doesn't mean that God loves him any more than God loves you. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Yes, in this world, he is first and you are last. But in God's kingdom, this guy's at the back of the line. And this is where he says that famous line. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And the reason why he says this is because he, this is his way of saying very specifically, God does not determine your lot in life, and God does not determine your level of suffering, because that is inconsistent with a God of love. It does not work. 
If you're going to say that God is a loving God, you have to let go of this idea that God controls the world. Because the two things don't go together. The two beliefs cannot coexist side by side. Because if you believe that God in any way contributes to the suffering of this world, then you cannot say that God is loving. It just doesn't work because there is too much suffering in the world. Far too much. Think about it. How much poverty is there in the world? Enormous amounts of poverty. How much starvation is occurring? Lots of starvation. Think about illness and disease and cancer. How many people get that? Lots of that. Think about abuse. So many people are abused. Violence, war, genocide. It's all going on, right? If you are going to say that God is loving, the only way you can deal with the problem of suffering is to remove God's control of the world. Now, a lot of Christians don't like this. I'm going to be straight with you. Because most Christians... They want God to have some role in our lives, to be able to control some aspect of what happens to us. Because here's the problem. Once you remove God's control of the world, your life comes down to two things. The outcome of your life is the result of two elements, chance and personal choice. That's really it. So let's use chance. Let's talk about chance. When you were born... Did you have a choice where you were born? No. Now, a lot of people, the way that they think about it is they say, well, God wanted me to be in this family. God chose for me to be born in this family. That was God's plan. But instead, I think most of us would understand that that is chance. And chance is a really big part of our world. But just so you know, next week we're going to get into this idea of God's plan. That's what we're going to like talk about next week. But chance, and I really want to try to help understand this, because once I got this concept, it really changed the way I understood the universe and the world. Chance is a huge part of the way God designed the universe. Like, we think of chance as like, oh, well, it's just like part of, you know, like this chance, you roll a dice, right? Chance is a huge part of the way life exists. So take a step back. I want you to think about the universe, not here on Earth, the universe. Do you know how many galaxies there are in the universe estimated right now? About 200 billion galaxies. Galaxies. Galaxies are conglomerations of stars, not single stars. 200 billion galaxies. Within each galaxy, and these are galaxies right here. All of those things you see are galaxies. Within each of those galaxies is anywhere from 100 million to a billion stars in each of them. And around every one of those stars are planets whizzing around them. And some of those planets are like our planet. They're in what we call the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold. Now, some of those planets, with a little bit of luck and a lot of time, are going to evolve life like our life. Some of it's just going to be bacterial, simple. Some of it will evolve intelligent life. Some of it far more intelligent than we are. And I tell this to you, I say this to you, because if you think that we are the only intelligent life in the universe, I just say look up. I mean, there is, the odds of that are so infinitesimally low that that, ha- that that exists that way. Now, we may not ever find that intelligent life, but it's very low that that life does not exist somewhere out there. So what this tells you is, is that the universe is this giant petri dish for life, and chance plays a big role in it. Chance is why we're here. 
But that's the beauty of the universe, is that there's all these chances of it going on. Billions and billions of worlds where all of this could be taking place. Now here's the thing. If chance is the way we got here, right, up to this point, then chance plays a very big role in our lives. And sometimes chance works in our favor, sometimes it doesn't. I'll give you an example. At one of the first churches I ever worked in, there's a guy there who everybody told me about. And they were like, this guy, he needed a liver transplant. And he was about to die. And what happened was there was a kid, a teenager, he was crossing the street, a drunk driver hits him. He's dead. And they end up taking his organs out. And this guy gets this teenager's liver. And I think, and this was a long time ago, I think today he's still alive as a result of that. Now, let's use that scenario. Was that God's plan? Was God orchestrating that? Did God cause that for that kid to cross the street? He gets hit by the drunk driver and then the the liver. I would say most of you in here probably say no, right? It was chance, was it not? He was walking across the street at the wrong time. The drunk driver was there at the wrong time. This guy was there at the right time in the hospital to get it. Chance all the way across the board. All right, that's one element of our lives, right? The other element is personal choice. So God, rather than dictate our decisions, has given us the ability to make our own decisions. And again, Christians don't entirely like this idea. A lot of Christians want God to have some role in this, as opposed in something, right? What I'm talking about is total hands-off. But to me, that is consistent with a God of love. Essentially, God is saying, look, I love you so much, I am not going to interfere with your decisions. That I created this universe, and I give it to you, and you have to make your choices. You have to be able to make your way through the universe. Now, this is both a blessing and a curse, is it not? It's a blessing in the sense that what? You have the choice to do whatever you want. It is a curse in the sense that our choices have consequences. Some good, some bad. So those consequences, sometimes, particularly if it's just you, you may, nobody else might know about those consequences if it's just you, right? But sometimes those consequences, they ripple out beyond you, and they can cause suffering. And you all know this, this may happen to you this morning before you came here. You said something you should have said. You did something you shouldn't do, right? That ripples out. It causes suffering in the world, yes? Now you combine that, with chance, where you can get into accidents, where you can get illness and disease, and it is chance and choice that comprise the vast majority of our suffering. Yes? Would you agree with that? I mean, really, that's what it comes down to, choice and chance. So, the other aspect of this, which is really hard, though, is that suffering is a big part of our lives. It is. It is a big part of what we have to endure in our lives. In fact, it's so big that we have evolved as human beings to use suffering to learn and become better people. Because here's the thing, how many of you have been through really hard, difficult, challenging experiences and you've come out on the other side better for it? Not that you wanted to be in that, but you came out on the other side better for it. I can tell you I have. I grew up, in my childhood when I was growing up, I suffered a lot growing. That's why I became a pastor. I became a pastor because nobody was really there to help me. Nobody really saw what I was going through. 
And I wanted to be a person, because I know what it's like to suffer, I wanted to be there for people who are suffering so that they have somebody who can walk alongside them because nobody was there for me. But this raises a really important question. And this is really the biggest question of this sermon, which is, if human life has so much suffering in it, and if we as humans use suffering to learn and grow our character, then does God want us to suffer? Now, for me, I can tell you my answer to that is no. I do not believe that a loving God would want you to suffer, even though suffering is so much a part of our world. Here's what I think happened, and this is the crux. If you don't remember anything else I say from this sermon, remember this part, which is this. When God created this universe, God had a choice. And the choice was create a perfect world where you don't suffer, but you have to take away your freedom of choice, because that's really the only way it's going to be perfect, is if you can't choose what you're doing. Or create an imperfect world where you have total autonomy. And given the choice between those two things, the universe that we live in is a choice that is imperfect, but you have been given the autonomy to do what you want to do. And once you've been given freedom of choice, unfortunately, suffering becomes part of the equation. I mean, it just, it does at that point. But to me, I will tell you, I think that is one of the greatest gifts because here's the thing, not only does it have the ability to shape and mold you and build your character, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it breaks us. I mean, there's truth to that. But a lot of times it does build you and mold you. But on the flip side of that, it is this precious gift because here's the thing, and this is what I want to lead you, leave you with today. I think this is remarkable. Yes, freedom of choice, your ability to choose, it can cause suffering. But on the other side of it, you can also choose to love people. You can choose to heal people. You can choose to help people. You can choose to alleviate other people's suffering. Now that's the part that I think we often don't think about, is that by giving us the choice, right, you have this choice to change the world and people's circumstances for the better. You don't always have to choose suffering, even though suffering comes from our choices. And that, to me, is a remarkable gift that we have been given. And that is why we follow Jesus. What is the whole point of the gospel? In many ways, the point of the gospel is for us to read about Jesus, who tells us, live your life this way, make these kinds of choices, and you will remove suffering from the world. And that is a big part of what we talk about every week. What is our tagline here? What do we say? Choose love. It is a choice to choose the way that you live. Choice is a part of the theology of why God gives us what we have so that we can alleviate suffering. Choose love, be the light, do things to alleviate suffering, and change the world for the better. To me, that is the gospel message. That is the universe that we live in, and it's the beauty of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we can go out and we can remove people suffering from the world. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.